But for generations throughout our history, like music has been core to our experience. It's, it's a huge part of worship, even uh, in our faith experience. Uh, it's a part of who we are. Some say music is all about rhythm, right? This beat, this strong, regular, repeated pattern of sound. And it's funny to think that we can make all of these songs that are meaningful to us just out of these patterns of sound. We just get rhythm. It's like wired into our DNA. It's why we even talk about rhythm in terms of like non-musical terms. We talk about our lives have rhythms in it, right? There's this like drumbeat to our daily lives that we instinctively feel. And as we begin this journey through Genesis, as we started last month, uh, through the book of Genesis, you actually see these rhythms like take place in the creation story. The Bible starts out with rhythms. In Genesis 1, right, there's night and there's day and there's a steady rhythm. There's 365 days in in a year as we go around the sun. Uh, The sun rises, the sun sets every 24 hours. You have summer, you have fall, you have winter, you have spring predictably mostly in Michigan coming at the same time every year, right? Your human heart has a rhythm, the steady beat of your breathing in and out. So much of our lives are defined by rhythm that we tend to just take it for granted, right? The whole of creation story is the story of God putting rhythms into our lives and into our world. And whether you know it or not, whether you pay attention to it or not, your life is designed by and affected deeply by rhythms. And what's interesting to me as a person is how much I work against rhythms. And I try to like set my own beat and I try to work against the rhythms that our lives tend to get out of sync. Have you ever felt like you were in a season where you're just like, I'm just off the beat. I am out of sync. Like things feel stressed, right? When we're not uh, involved in rhythms. We find it really hard to establish and keep rhythms that give us health, that give us joy, that give us fulfillment. We're like bad at rhythm. It's so interesting. Um, And I don't think it's because we don't recognize the value of rhythm. I think the problem is practicing the value of rhythm. Um, let's just think about like our work. Here's some stats for you. Uh, at least 134 countries in the world have set laws uh, with a maximum length of a work week, right? Where you cannot work more than X amount of hours. Not in our country. We don't mess with that, right? Uh, in the United States, 85.8% of men, of males, 66.5% of females work more than 40 hours a week. Uh, If that's a rhythm established in both countries, we're like, we don't want it, right? Uh, Americans work 137 more hours per year than Japanese workers, 260 more hours per year than British workers, and 499 more hours per year than those lazy French workers, right? That's how we read those stats, isn't it? Again, I don't think any of us would argue, I should have some like rhythms and downtime in my life. Most of us would agree like, yeah, being overworked and rest is a good thing, but yet we still don't. We still don't live that way. It's very difficult for us to do that. So I wanna wonder about that idea together uh, this morning from the book of Genesis. We've broken the book of Genesis, the whole thing, uh, down into a bunch of mini-series that we're doing here uh, in the first half of the year. Uh, The one we've been in since the beginning of January is called Beginnings. 
because it's the beginnings, right? It's the, the beginning part. It's, it's the patterns that set everything in motion for the rest of the world and the rest of our lives. And what we want to do in every single one of these miniseries is at the very end of it, this last week of the miniseries, we want to revisit something that we saw in the text from the series. We want to revisit that text in a way that says, how do we practice Genesis together? So today, we're going to start again in Genesis. We're going to explore our rhythms and our relationship to God rhythms, but we're going to talk about how do we practice that together. So to get there, I'm going to go back to Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 1, verse 28, and we're going to just engage in the creation story once again. And, And let me just read through this, starting in verse 28. God blessed them, the the man and woman that he created, the humans. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Some make a really great argument that say, we were designed to be vegetarians. I'm not sure I'm on board with that, but here's where that comes from. Um, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So this section of scripture essentially ends the creative work of God. This is the story of creation. Every day he makes something new. He separates light from dark. It's the first day he builds, or he he creates plants and animals and he he puts those on other days. Uh, But after setting in the whole world into motion, he finally comes to you and I. He, He comes to humanity. He comes to us. And God gives us work to do. The creation story is given to us not just as this like origin story of like, this is how stuff came to be not just as an answer to where we come from, but it is this poetic, illustrative depiction of the way the world was meant to be. And when you read early in Genesis, that's a really important thing to keep in mind. This is a picture of the way it was all meant to work together. And in that picture is work, is labor. We have stuff to do. Right, Genesis 2 verse 15 reiterates that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. As much as you might believe it, your work is not a direct result of the fall. It actually is part of who we're supposed to be. And so in the picture of the way it was supposed to be, we had work to do. We had animals to name. We had land to work. We had vegetation to bring forth. We had to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And God assigns us our work. And then the first thing he does to us is say, now take a day off, right? When you're assigning chores to your children, is that how you do that? Hey, good morning. I would love for you to like uh, clean up after the dog outside. I would love for you to like uh, unload the dishwasher, clean up the kitchen. And for the love of everything, just clean your room up, right? But first, 
take a beat, right? Let's take the day and hang out. No, we don't think like that. We don't do that. But God thinks like that. We have work to do, but our job is not to begin it right away. That first rhythm God gives us is a rhythm of rest first, work second. That's how he designed you to be. That's the rhythm of all creation. You see, for most of us, we work against the rhythm God gave us rather than with it. We don't like the idea of resting before we work. We prioritize work. We prioritize effort. We prioritize completion. And then we use rest as a reward for all that we did. I'm not telling you anything you don't know probably, but it's important to notice that that is not how God created you to be. I mean, this is why I think Genesis talks about days so strangely. I've talked about this before, but throughout the creation story, they always end the day of work by saying it was evening and it was morning and that was the first day. And then it was evening and then it was morning and that was the second day. That's not how I talk about days. That's a crazy person's way to talk about what a day is, but that's how the Bible talks about it, right? We think about resting our heads at night after completing our work, but In God's rhythms, night comes first, rest comes first, because while I rest, God is making the world turn. While I sleep, God is making sure the world happens. And when I awake, I step into what God has done. We often talk, we often use this picture around Jamestown Harbor, this picture of a, of a pendulum, right? That there is this rhythm that we have uh, between rest and between work. And for so many of us, our approach to these things is to say, I'm just going to peg the needle over here on the work side until I get so tired, I have to go to the other direction. We start with rest and we swing towards work right? God designed us to say, you're going to start with stepping into what I'm doing and you're going to find fruitfulness in your work. And then you're going to swing back to your rest so that you can center yourself in my rhythms and who I am. And our lives get really problematic when we don't work according to this rhythm, when we dance to a different tune. So I want to start there because I think it's important for us to know this is how Genesis talks about rhythms. This is the beginning, how Genesis talks about the beginnings of, uh, of our rhythms. Now, let me give you a little backstory on Genesis. Um, I read a book recently called uh, Genesis for Normal People, which is a really great book because uh, I feel like a normal person. And uh, I learned some things in this book by a guy named Peter Enns. Um, but he was talking about what the Torah is. And he talks about Genesis. Genesis is the first of five books uh, that the Hebrews called the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Torah was their Bible. And the interesting thing about the Torah is it has all these stories in it. It has stories of Cain and Abel. It has stories of Abraham. It has stories of Joseph. It has stories of Adam and Eve in creation. But those stories were not written as they happened, right? There wasn't somebody sitting in the corner of the Garden of Eden going, okay, what are these guys doing now? Like, you get that, right? Like, these stories were not written as they happened. Uh, Sometimes it's hard. We go, oh, yeah, I guess that's true. I I don't think about that. So when these stories were finally written down, it's important to know why they were. 
Because these were stories, this entire book of, of the Torah, were, were stories written to a people, to God's people, to the Israelite community. So at some point, they took the stories that they had been telling themselves for, for generations, and they wrote them down so that their people could have them. And the reason they did that is because they said, these stories will help us make sense of the world we live in. And the world that they were living in when these stories were written down was a, was a world of national trauma. This was a group of people who went through a significant trauma in their lives. And so they wrote down the stories God had given them over generations to say, we want to make sense out of this trauma. It's sort of like going, you know what? After 9-11 happens in America, we need to write down our stories that God has given us because they will help us understand how we got here, uh, what we're to do while we're here. Why does this world that we live in look the way that it looks? And so it was written down to a community of people who were in, uh, who had just returned from captivity. They were taken away. They lost their temple, their center of their worship and their relationship to God. They lost it. They were taken over by the Babylonians. They knocked down their temple. They took people away, their leaders, their best and their brightest to a far off land and most of them never returned. That is a national trauma to their identity. So they take all these stories God has given them and they say, we gotta write this down because we need to know how we got here so we don't get here again. We don't ever want to experience this trauma again. And so they write them down in a way that helps them understand their trauma. And they write down the stories of creation, of the flood and Noah, of Abraham, of Cain and Abel, all these things, and even creation in a way to say, this helps us understand what God has been doing this whole time and how we got to where we were. So for example, here's a great way to understand this. A key part of the Israelite story is captivity. Right? This is a group of people who were in captivity in Babylon. It was not the only time they experienced this. In fact, they have a, a significant national trauma generations earlier in Egypt. We talk about the book of Exodus, right? This, this leaving uh, of, the, of the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel from slavery in Egypt. There's a great Disney movie about the whole thing, right? But that was an important story in their life. And when they tell that story... They tell themselves a story of their slavery. They talk about a different kind of rhythm in their life at that time, right? They tell about what their people experienced when they were there so that we can remember it later and never end up there. So the story is that Moses comes to the king of Egypt after 430 years of the Israelites living under the thumb of the Egyptian rulers. And Moses comes to the king of Egypt on, beha on behalf of God and he says, listen, you need to let my people, you need to let the Israelites go out into the desert and worship. You need to have our group of people head out to the desert to have a Sabbath day so they can worship their God. And here's how the story goes in Exodus 5. But the king of Egypt said to them in this request, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get back to work. Pharaoh continued, there are large numbers of your people in this land but you are stopping them from working. This is their whole labor force. I can't afford to have these people take a Sabbath day, right? That same day, Pharaoh gave orders to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. And he said, don't give the people any more straw to make bricks. Let them go and get their own straw. 
but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't lower the number that they have to make. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, Let's, let us go. We want to offer sacrifices to our God. Make them work harder. Then they will be too busy to pay attention to the lies. That's a good verse to circle in your Bible, right? You will be too busy to pay attention to what God's trying to do. So Moses and Aaron say, listen, you've got our whole group of, our whole nation on this rhythm. And this rhythm is breaking our backs to make bricks. We want to stop that rhythm because God gave us a different kind of rhythm that we haven't been able to use for hundreds of years. Can you let us go out into the desert and do that? I think their request seems reasonable, right? What they're asking for is a different kind of rhythm, a rhythm that acknowledges that we are human beings, that worshiping God is a core part of what it means to be a human being. But the king of Egypt says, no, you guys are going to make bricks day in and day out, every single day, more bricks, more, in fact, no rest, just more bricks, no creativity, no worshiping your God, no hope, just work harder. That's the rhythm I want you to have. And so a people of a national trauma who saw themselves lose everything recognize that how they live determines where they end up. And so they tell themselves the story of when they were slaves in Egypt. And they say there was something wrong about that experience. And they also tell themselves the story of how God created the world. And said, that's how it's supposed to be. God created us to live like that. And they contrast the two stories. This pain we experience likely comes because, man, we are just not living in the rhythms God gave us. God didn't give us to bricks and to work harder and to find our own straw and keep the production up. That's a painful moment in our story because we were supposed to live differently. This is how God created us to live. So the creation story for us is more, it's not a science book. It's not a textbook. It is a story of how God created us to be. And when we live into the way God created us to be, when we live into his God-created rhythms, we experience wholeness like we were meant to. And when we live by a different set of rhythms— by our own discretion or whoever puts that on us, this drive and this pain for bricks and work, we end up enslaved and exiled. So the creation story is not just a story about how we came to be. It is a story that tells us who we are, who we were created to be. It gives us a window into the way that we were created to live. And if we find God infusing rhythms into creation in Genesis, it's important for us to say, well, how do I take a next step with that? Because I don't know about you, but I listen to people talk about God all the time. You can come here every week, listen to us talk about God, and then walk out the door and go, that was good thinking, right? That was a neat story. I really liked playing Name That Tune, right? You can have that experience. But I want to talk about how we practice what God put in Genesis, what God put in our story. So I want to move forward and I want to go to the the book of Mark and talk about two rhythms that Jesus himself practiced uh, in the gospel of Mark. And I believe Jesus himself practices them because that's what God designed him to do. 
And that's what his Hebrew community knew to say, this is the story of how God made us. So how do we live into that? So the first story comes out of Mark chapter one uh, in verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they explained, everyone is looking for you. Great example of rhythms, right? Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Jesus, you have a ton to do on your to-do list today. Jesus, we got to get at it. The early bird catches the worm, right? Our lives feel exactly like that. Everyone wants something from you. Our lives just barrel forward, trying to make everyone happy. And when we try and get away, they just text you anyway, right? That's the world we live in. The unhealthy rhythms are always trying to find you. They are always trying to find you. And they seem to get in control of our lives when they do, right? Uh, There's this great story uh, about two men uh, on a road. One man was walking along the road and he looked up and he saw another man coming towards him uh, on a horse. And the closer he got, the more that the walking man noticed the man on the horse was going faster and faster, just galloping at an incredible speed. So fast that he's got, as, as, as the horse got near, he had to jump off of the side of the road because he didn't want to get run over by this guy, right? And as he did that, as they flew by on the horse, the guy on the ground shouted to him, he's like, where are you going in such a hurry? And the man, now yards down the road, turns back and shouts, I don't know, ask the horse. It's a dumb joke. But you feel that ring true today too. Where are you going so fast? I don't know, ask my calendar. I don't know, ask my kid's sports schedule. I don't know, ask my boss. They're in control of my rhythms, not me and certainly not God. So what I want you to know is that Jesus experiences that exact same thing. Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Let's get to work. And Jesus's response is to place a barrier between himself and the call to an unhealthy rhythm. He puts a fence, he puts a barricade, he puts a barrier He leaves the house. He walks away. He does it in the dark. He turns location services off on his phone. And he did that through this practice that we today call silence and solitude. It's really simple, right? It's an important practice for you and for I uh, and for me because silence and solitude functions as a barrier in our lives against these unhealthy rhythms, against this control by someone else. And so let me give you a way to do it, right? A way to practice that, this sort of same rhythm. Um, The first thing you need to do is decide on your solitary place. Jesus is like, I got to get out of the house to do this. You might need to do that too, but you could have a space in your home. Could be a room, could be a specific chair at a specific time of day after the kids are off to school and you're alone, or it could be after everyone goes to bed or before everyone gets home, right? Do something physical that can communicate to the world, at least to you, that this is like a solitary place for you. Maybe it's just like caution tape on a door. I don't know, right? Do not disturb sign. Maybe it's just a pillow. I don't know, right? It could be someplace out of your home. It could be a park. It could be in the woods. It could be a spot on the beach, 
but name a place and a space, a time that is accessible for you regularly, daily if you can manage it. And the time there doesn't have to be like long, but it should be accessible to you. King David, if you look through the scriptures, he made this practice of silence and solitude seven times a day, right? He probably wasn't in it for an hour every day, but seven times a day he did that. The prophet Daniel did this three times a day. Whatever it is, start with this practical when and where. A lot of you know that for the last three weeks, I was on a little mini sabbatical. I got this grant. And one of the things I wanted to do intentionally was silence and solitude. Uh, I actually, this is, this is silly, but I had this little like love seat in my home office, which also is our home gym, which also is the place the cat lays down. Like there's a lot of things going on in that room. But I had this little love seat. And what I did is I just turned it 90 degrees. It's just a little marker to me that like, okay, I'm, that space is a little special to me and I'm gonna engage some silence and solitude in that time. Uh, additionally, I went away for a few days on a little silence and solitude retreat just to be alone and to open up the space to say, I wanna hear what God has to say rather than what everyone else has to say. So that's the first one is decide on a solitary place. Uh, the next step to doing that is you also need to decide on a strategy. Because if you're anything like me, just, all right, I sat down, now what do I do, is very problematic, right? So what are you going to do when you're in this space? There's almost no wrong way to practice it. I think as long as you're silent and alone, you're in the right ballpark. You don't even have to pray anything specific. You don't have to go through a laundry list of stuff. As long as you're turning your attention to God, you're doing it well. But me personally, I need like a handle. I need like a box to check. It's the way I am. So here's one way to engage silence and solitude. Um, The first thing I would say is you start small. Your strategy should start small. Three minutes of silence and solitude is an important gift that you, most of you, don't ever have in a given day. Start small. Don't ignore the idea of just saying, look, I need a minute right? I I once heard a podcast about building new habits in your life, and they were talking about running. Um, And running's a hard habit to build because it's, you know, physically, it's painful. Uh, And so one of the things that this woman said in this podcast was, sometimes you just need to start with one minute on that treadmill. Get your shoes on, put your shorts on, one minute. And then when you're done, you're like, I did it today. So start small. Second piece of the strategy that I like to use in there is to find a way to silence the inner voice. I actually try to not think about anything, which is really, really hard. You'll be terrible at it at first. It takes practice. But the goal is for me to in, like, uh, pursue this, this quieting of the internal noise and emptying of myself from it. And so then, because I'm trying to do that, I got to do the, the next thing, the third thing, which is I got to deal with the distractions. Because they're going to come. As you are quieting the noise, something's going to pop back up. That clock is just ticking too loud and I can't deal with it. What are we going to make for dinner tonight? Um, Does that person really love me? All that is normal. Your brain working that fast, you already taught it a rhythm and you're changing it. So your brain is going to go, oh, back to bricks, 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 right? But I found that if I just simply keep a piece of paper next to me and notice the thought that's distracting me and just write it down, dinner, clock, I write down about one word on that paper and then I go back to the quieting. I mean, sometimes in like five minutes, I have a hundred things on the list because that's just the way it is. 
But eventually you're going to find yourself with a shorter and shorter list if this becomes a practice for you. And so in order to kind of recenter myself after that, the fourth thing I do is I have a centering phrase, just a thing that I say, a little mantra that, that brings me back to what I'm doing that recenters myself, that I repeat back to myself to get myself there. Something like Psalm 46 verse 10, be still and know that I am God. That's a great one. I love using that one. Just be still and know that I am God. That's what God sent me. Or Psalm 37 verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Or it could be just a simple prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Something simple. And then you don't have to do this this way, but one of the things I like to do after uh, going through that for however long I set out is I like to journal my experience. After my minutes of silence, I take a few more minutes to capture what that experience felt like, to write down what I think God might be saying or what I could do about it. Um, The way I've been doing it is I have this Google Doc um, that I access only on this really old computer. This computer is so slow, it can't really search the internet for anything fun or exciting. It can open this Google Doc, and I can type in it. That's my journal, right? But that's one rhythm that Jesus practices, minus the Google Doc. He doesn't use that, right? But Jesus practices silence and solitude regularly. It demonstrates a daily rhythm that tunes us into how God created us. And so he does that daily. We see it happen all the time is this barrier between the rhythm God has for him and the rhythm the rest of the world would like for you to have. So that's the first thing he does. He also does a weekly rhythm, which won't surprise you. It's called Sabbath, and it comes in in Mark 1 as well. Verse 23, on Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? If you know anything about the Pharisees, as we talk about them in our church, these are people who really, really, really care about the rules. So they said, Jesus, why are you guys not like following the rules to the letter of the law? And Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? And in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. He didn't follow the law in that moment. And then he said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The, son of, the, the Sabbath was made for you. You weren't made for it. Right? Your whole life is not designed just to keep the rule. Right, The idea of this particular rhythm, this one in seven rhythm that we celebrate with a Sabbath day, is because it was created for you to experience the rhythm and renewal that God has baked inside of you. Now, the biblical idea of Sabbath simply starts with no work. It's a period of rest, not work. And for generations, people have sought to interpret that into their own context. The Pharisees certainly did. And one of the ways they interpreted no work was don't pick pieces of grain as you walk by, right? In fact, they created a rule that said you can only take X amount of steps on a given Sabbath day uh, because on step 72, you're good, but on step 73, now you're working, right? That's how they approached it. Maybe you have experienced uh, Sabbath-keeping rules in your own family story or your own history. We don't buy things on Sunday, right? 
We don't play with our friends on Sabbath day. We don't turn on the TV on the Sabbath day, whatever it might be. But the first thing we need to know about this rhythm is that it is a starting point for us. It's not a reward for us. It is the beginning of our rhythm. To practice Sabbath rest, this one and seven, is to build a new rhythm where rest is not a reward for the work, but our work and our lives, our fruitfulness flows out of this space. Because Sabbath tells us who we are. It's not a timeout punishment. It's not a battery recharge station. Sabbath as a rhythm, one in seven days, is a practice that rewires your heart to understand who you are, to understand who God is. It's an opportunity to disengage from the world's rhythms, to put ourselves in a different space and to experience things that bring joy to you and rest to you, to remind us of who is keeping the world spinning while we receive from him. It's also this singular opportunity we have throughout the week to, to, to gather with your faith community and to worship together reordering our mind's attention on who God is. Sabbath matters. It's not just a day off. It changes the way we understand who we are. So let me give you two quick ways you can engage this particular practice. One is a big way. One is a small way. Um, The first one is, is I tell people, find a way to take a sabbatical which is not just one every seven days, but says, you know, once uh, every seven years, once every seven months, once every season, I take some time, whether it's paid or unpaid from my work, to engage in different rhythms in your life. Sometimes we need to like decompress from the rhythms that have been building. People who are taking advantage of sabbaticals today aren't uh, taking time off from work because they need to relax but they're engaged in a different way of understanding their rhythms, a set period of time to, to, to reset uh, the rhythms that they're in, right? I took a three-month sabbatical five years ago. I just told you I took a three-week one uh, just last month, uh, and it was some very intentional time for me and God that included five particular days of silence and solitude. And that three-week sabbatical has been really important for my own rhythms, And I say this is a big one because it takes a lot of work to plan, to strategize. Uh, There are lots of ways to approach it. But I continue to tell people sabbaticals are not just for college professors and pastors. We all need that in our life. And God may be calling you to say you need a particular reset in your life. And that may be a way to do it. So that's the big one. The smaller one is really simple. Honor the Sabbath day. One day out of every seven straight out of God's commands, how he shaped us. But for many of us, it's become optional, not necessary. So make it necessary in your life. Say, you know what? This is now necessary to me. Change your life to engage something differently. Don't just come to church in the morning and then like do your chores and, you know, give yourselves a day. Maybe start at sundown for you if that helps, right? But remove things from that day that are part of the rhythms of other days and put something in the rhythms of that day that just brings you a ton of joy. That's usually my best advice. Do something that you don't do on other days that brings you joy. Maybe it's just family game time. Maybe it's taking a nap. I don't get to take a nap all the other days. Although I would say naps are a really important spiritual discipline, and that's a whole other story. But it might be going to the beach. It might be taking a walk. 
If you work out on the other days, don't do it on this day, right? If you go to work on the other days, don't do it on this day. If you work on your to-do list and your chores, don't do it on this day. But find something that says, you know what? There is something special. I love going to the movies. If I can do that on my Sabbath day, it brings me joy. What is something that you can put uh, every, every week in this one day that says, this will bring me joy and change my rhythm, my daily rhythm? Start building a list of the things that you might be saving for your Sabbath day and treat this day as something different. It's difficult for all of us, and it takes practice. That's why it's a practice. So listen, we wanted to spend this day and go back to Genesis and say, how do we practice this together? We're a next steps kind of people, and uh, your faith journey is always defined not by your arrival, but by the next step you take. And I I remember having this conversation with people in the past who would say things like, I don't want to be a slave anymore. I I don't want to make bricks all the time, but I am. So I'm going to take a step and give myself uh, to a, a different kind of Sabbath than I have been doing. So you can take a next step too. In fact, take out your phone right now. We're going we're gonna to do this together. It's okay. Take it out. Take out your phone. And here's what I want you to do. Something I said today stuck with you. Something I said today maybe moved you or hung with you or thought, oh, that's a good idea. Open your messages app and text that idea to someone. Even if it's yourself, that's okay. But just text this to someone because you know what that'll do? They're going to go, what are you texting me about? And now you have a conversation to have, okay? So let me close by reminding us of Genesis. Every single day in creation story, Genesis tells us there was evening and there was morning and that was the day. We're reminded of the rhythms of communication or of creation by God, that he's God and that we are not. And every day we're invited to trust those rhythms. But on day seven, the scripture does not tell us there was evening and there was morning and that was the end of the seventh day. And ancient rabbis interpret that as to say, well, the seventh day is still going. It has no ending. We are in it right now. We are in the opportunity for new life and resurrection through Christ. And we can rest in the fact that God is in control of the world and that we don't have to be. So let's have a word of prayer and then we're gonna finish with one more song together. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day, for this opportunity, for this one in seven chance to gather with our faith community, to hear from your words, to engage in the rhythms of song and a different way of understanding our daily and our uh, weekly rhythms. God, I confess to you that I would almost always prefer bricks, bricks, bricks because I am broken by sin in this world. Something inside of me thinks I need to prove myself, thinks I need to earn my rest. Something inside of me thinks I need to be enough. And so God, I pray for every single one of us in this space today that we would set down that expectation and instead learn that we are enough. And more importantly, God, that you are enough. That if we make space for you and space for these rhythms in our lives, that we will become different. So we lift this up in the name of Jesus Christ and we pray this in his name.